in the middle of this series. I, we're actually about 10 weeks in, which is a long time for a series. If you haven't been here, don't worry. We'll get you all caught up. But what we're doing is we're, we're reading through the New Testament together as a church family. So if you're behind, I do not want you to worry, unless you're so far behind that you haven't started yet. If you're that far behind, you should worry. Start reading your Bible a little bit. But if you're just reading a little bit a day, I, I totally firmly believe a little Bible is better than no Bible. So we're going to be into the book of Romans tomorrow, uh, but we're going to give ourselves a two-part overview today. And I took a poll and, and just asked what people thought about this sermon series, and it was rave reviews. Everybody I talked to said, this has been so awesome. They've loved it. Five stars. I actually only talked to myself, but I've enjoyed it. I haven't really asked anybody else yet, but I don't want to ruin the curve uh, with, uh, with the poll there. So it's been good so far. So, so far, so good. I want to show you a picture of three guys. You probably wouldn't recognize them on site, but uh, you'll know their names. I want to tell you a little bit about them and their relationship to the book of Romans. 386 AD, a guy named Augustine, or Augustine, depending on uh, what professor you had teach you. He was a pretty influential Christian thinker. He was going through a bit of a religious existential crisis. We've probably all been there where we're just struggling. Does God really forgive my sins? Am I really saved? Is, is the things that in my past that are haunting me, are they really gone? And he was struggling with that. He actually randomly got this impulse to read the book of Romans, or in his case, the scroll. So he grabbed the scroll of Romans and he rolled it out and he rolled to, scrolled to Romans chapter 13 and he randomly picked verse 13 and he wrote this in his autobiography. This is out of Romans 13, 13. This is his, his reflection on it. He said, no further would I read, nor had I any need. Instantly, at the end of the sentence, a clear light flooded my heart and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. Romans had, in an instant, changed his perspective on his relationship with God. Just a random verse in Romans. All right, Romans, very cool. I like that. August 1513. Professor of theology named Martin Luther was having his own existential crisis. He was struggling with how could a truly holy God forgive him? How could he ever do enough to be forgiven by God? And he was struggling with it. He was actually teaching a college course on Romans and he was wrestling with this question. He was in the beginning of the book of Romans and he's teaching Romans 1:17, and it all clicked into place for him. And he read Romans 17, and then he went on to start what we know as the Protestant Reformation. Kind of a, kind of a big deal. Romans, pretty big deal. May 24th, 1738, 8.45 p.m. John Wesley is invited by a friend to a public reading of Martin Luther's commentary to Romans. Now, if that sounds boring, it would be. It would be incredibly boring, and John Wesley did not want to go, as you can imagine. But evidently, he valued this friend well enough. It was probably a girl, because that's what guy, why guys do things. They do them for girls. And he went with this friend to this reading of a commentary on the book of Romans. And as the introduction to Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans is being read, John Wesley said his heart began to warm, and he began to understand this profound truth that God loved him, which is a truth that we've heard all our lives, but it's sunk in deep in a way that he hadn't been able to grasp before. And he went on to write songs, start uh, revivals in England that spread over to the U.S. I mean, Romans, I mean, that's a 
Big deal. That's a pretty cool book. So I'm thinking, what could it be for us as we dig into Romans? What could it be that God wants to transform in us as we read this book? I mean, who knows? Who knows? Now, I don't think Romans, the book, needs to be promoted, but these guys would all give it two thumbs way up. It would be five stars on Yelp all the way. They thought it was a pretty incredible book, um, particularly in the category of personal life change. So if you're someone who maybe wrestles a little bit with some of those faith questions, those faith crises, those, those worries, those existential questions about God and about truth and reality and life and sin and all of that, if you wrestle with that, Romans may be just the place for you because it has worked well for many people throughout history, and I think it has the same application and promises for you in 2022. So we're going to start reading Romans tomorrow. And here's four things that will be helpful for you to know as you dig into the book of Romans. Number one, Paul had never, Paul's the author, he had never been to Rome. Typically, he would write letters to churches he had visited and kind of knew what was going on behind the scenes. He had peeked behind the curtains and he knew like, oh, they need to hear this. They need to hear that. And so he would tailor his letters to this specific audience. But he hadn't been to Rome. And so what we get in this letter to the Romans is the most comprehensive explanation of Paul's religious worldview. We're hearing Paul explain everything that he believes about truth and reality and the human condition and God. And it's, it's really beautiful in that way. So it's a very comprehensive explanation. Secondly, Paul is uh, a formidable thinker. He's the kind of guy that you would just avoid having any debate with because he's, I mean, I think he's a genius, but he is very formidable in his way, his way of constructing arguments. I think Paul would just, he would just tie us up in knots because he's just a brilliant thinker, debater. You may have noticed in Acts chapter 9 when we were reading through the book of Acts, it talks about how Paul confounded, I like that word, he confounded the Jewish people he was talking to proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. I think that's pretty cool. I think Romans is Paul at his best. I mean, there's some brilliant, brilliant stuff here. So if you read, it's really helpful to read with a pen and a piece of paper. It's really helpful to walk through Romans, underline stuff, write stuff down, ask questions, because he'll weave key words and concepts throughout the letter. Thirdly, I think Paul had ADD. Because if you've ever read Romans, you'll be going 100 miles an hour in one direction and you'll be like, whoa, this is such great stuff. And then on a dime, he turns and he's, he's gone a totally different direction. You're like, whoa, whoa, it's like mental whiplash. Wait, what happened? We were talking about this thing over here and all of a sudden we're talking about this thing over here. And I think Paul was a little, it feels like he's a little all over the place. That may be just him being smart, but it is super helpful to give Romans your attention. You cannot skim Romans. You cannot treat Romans like you did that one class where the professor droned on and on and every once in a while he'd say this will be on the test, and so you perked up and wrote that thing down. You cannot do that with Romans, because every word, every line, every detail matters. You can't skim it. So you got to make yourself a cup of coffee, you got to make yourself a, a, a cup of tea, and you got to sit down with a pen, and you've got to read intricately through this book. It's so interesting, but it's, it's dense. And then the fourth thing I think you should know as we dig into Romans is that the culture to whom he's writing is extremely honor-shame culture. This doesn't relate well to us in modern Western individualistic societies. We don't get this because if somebody says, I don't like you, I don't like what you're doing, we say, well, I don't like you, I don't like what you're doing. On principle, we say that. But their culture wasn't like that. So if you were to go through the book of Romans and just highlight or just underline every place it uses the word shame or uses the word honor or associate 
associated words, you would see that that's just, it's core to the way that this, this book is constructed. And he's writing to a group of people who are deeply divided. It's a highly stratified culture. You are in your place and you know your place and you are kept in your place through this honor-shame perspective. There's wide income achievement and social status gaps. And you'll see that Paul is constantly trying to reshape their social identity. So just note that language. All right, so what's going on in Romans? What's Romans all about? What's happening here? We as a church, we are not an amening church. I knew I'd get at least one that would do that. I have tried, I have done my best to say things that I thought this We'll get an amen from someone and just utter silence. We are tried and true Minnesotans. We do not wear any of our emotions on our face or on our sleeve or anywhere else. We're not much of an amen in congregation, and that's fine. I've worked on it. I've worked through that. I've gone to therapy. But I know that if you want a positive reaction from the congregation or from a crowd, you got to give the crowd what they want. You got to say things the crowd can amen, which means that you have to agree with what the crowd already believes, typically. That's how you get an amen. So, by the way, I went to a concert not too long ago, and the, uh, the lead singer came out wearing a Twins jersey. Crowd goes nuts. He's not from here. He's not a Twins fan, but he knew that would get the crowd to react. Like if he had come out in a Packers jersey, people would have thrown Ludafisk at him or something. I don't know, because that wouldn't have been what the crowd wanted, because you've got to give the crowd what they want. So I bet even if I said just the right thing, just your pet thing, I could probably get a little murmur of an amen or maybe a head nod out of some of you if I said just the right thing. So I've been working on some amen lines this week. (laughs) Some amen lines. Tell me what you think. We'll try these on for size. The sermon is going to be 20% shorter today. (laughs) It was going to be, and then Leon took up all my time. That's not true. It's not going to be 20% shorter. I have no intention of making it 20% shorter. Uh, Hey, this is true. We might hit 60 degrees tomorrow. We might. I don't know. I'm not a weatherman, but I've heard good things. I've heard good things. And I do think it's a little funny because today I was looking at the forecast. I do every day because this cold weather has really been getting me down. And I look at the forecast every day and it said that today it might be up in the 40s. And I was like, hallelujah, Jesus, it might be up in the 40s. And I thought, what kind of crazy Stockholm syndrome situation are we in that I'm super excited about it breaking 40 degrees and that's like going to make my day. But it is. It's going to be nice and sunny. But I want, what I want you to think about when we say any of these things, I've mentioned this before, but we are a very theologically diverse congregation. So there are a few things that we could all agree on. And I think it's good that we are a theologically diverse congregation, because what that means is that we try to highlight the essential things, and we try not to get bogged down in things that shouldn't matter and don't matter. Uh, But that also means there's not a ton of things I could say that I could get, you know, a, a roar of amen from the crowd, which is okay. You know, it's okay. So I want you to hold on to that idea of amen, of of, uh, audience saying amen. The key, the key to Romans is this. It is to follow the grammar. I'm going to say something that some of you could amen, some of you will boo. But remember, Romans is not speaking to a modern 2022 society. But what I would say, if you could just wash uh, away the, the associations of the words that I'm about to say, but what I would say is that what we need to do with Romans is we need to pay attention to the pronouns. 
Paul was concerned about pronouns before it was trendy or popular. And if you could just ignore all our modern, current, cultural stuff with that, I think that you'll see what Paul is doing with pronouns is incredibly profound and valuable and will turn the light on for you with the book of Romans. So pay attention to the pronouns. Let's look at uh, Romans chapter 1. We're going to start there, and I'm going to highlight this idea based on three verses In Romans chapter 1, two that we're pretty familiar with and one maybe not so much. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. This is the popular verse. This is the verse that could get the crowd saying amen. Uh, But he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So you'll see gospel throughout the text. You also see that phrase, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile throughout the text. That shows up quite a bit as well. And that might sound familiar. It's got a sturdy ring to it. It's got like a Joshua 24, as for me and my house. It's a planting of the flag in the ground and saying, this is where we stand. I am not ashamed. Again, remember, honor, shame, language. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's very good. It's like the never give up stuff from Churchill. But I think the next verse is the one that you really should underline and maybe put on your wall because the next verse is the real key to the whole book. Verse 17, for in the gospel, for in this truth, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, from beginning to end, all the way back into the Hebrew Bible, all the way into the future. It's a righteousness revealed by faith just as it is written in the Hebrew Bible. The righteous will live by faith. Now, this is huge. Righteousness is accessible by faith. (laughs) Woohoo! Yeah, see, the problem, the reason that that doesn't resonate with us is because we don't really have a very good idea of what righteousness is. I would argue that maybe we don't have a real solid idea of what faith is, but we certainly don't have a solid idea of what righteousness is. I know for a lot of us, we think of righteousness as like, I don't know, is it, it's kind of doing the right thing, right? It's making sure that we sort our recyclables and we're punctual and, uh, you know, we don't cheat on our taxes and we say hi to our neighbors, you know, whether or not they say hi back. I mean, that, that's righteousness. It's doing the right thing. But that's not, that's not the biblical idea. That's not the human idea of righteousness. Righteousness is religious language for something that deeply matters to every human being. Righteousness is when we live life in alignment with who we were created to be. When you're walking in righteousness, you feel good about life because you know that you're living in alignment with your identity, with who God has created you to be. And you're living in that way and you feel good and you feel purposeful and you feel joy and you have access to these things that deeply matter to all humanity. And it's the opposite of a disjointed, distracted, disoriented life. It's just religious language for that thing. And we live in a culture that's saying, you define your own identity and then you live by that. And is that working out well for our culture? It is not. People are messed up. Mental health rates have skyrocketed. It is not working out well for people to say, well, I'm going to define my identity. I'm going to define my truth, and I'm going to live by that. It's not working well for people. We've given that a try. It doesn't work. But God has defined you. God has told you who you are. And to live in alignment with that truth is righteousness, and it feels right. And what Paul is saying is unbelievable. He says, we access that kind of life through faith. 
You cannot access that kind of life through works of the law. You cannot will your way to it. You cannot educate your way to it. You access that kind of life through faith. The righteous live by faith. All right, we'll talk about that probably next week a little bit more in part two of the Roman series. But let's look at verse 18, because this feels like, okay, I'm with you, Paul, I like this. And then all of a sudden, verse 18, you're like, whoa, okay, this came out of left field. The wrath of God is being revealed uh, from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So you're going 100 miles an hour in one direction, like, I like this, righteous shall live by faith, Jew first, then Gentile, I like all that, and then all of a sudden, what, wickedness and godlessness? Like, what, where did that come from, Paul? <laughs> what are you talking about? Remember, follow the grammar, pay attention to the pronouns. If you have your Bible, you can just, you can do this right here. But you notice, if you notice through verse 16 of chapter 1, it's all Paul saying, hey, I, I'm Paul. I can't wait to see you. I've heard about you guys. He's saying, I want to meet you. I'm excited to see you. I want to impart to you some spiritual gift. I've heard about you. Your reputation has really preceded you. I can't wait to get to know you guys. And that's through verse 16. And then in verse 17, which is this de declaration of faith and righteousness. And then verse 18 through 32. He switches pronouns. He only uses one pronoun. This is very fascinating. Again, if you have your Bibles, this is too small for some of you to read without uh, LASIK surgery. But if you have your Bibles, you can dig through that and you can say, oh yeah, he switched pronouns in there. He's not talking about I anymore. He's now talking about they and them. They suppress the truth. They claim to be wise. They didn't glorify God. They are full of envy. And this reality is even more true in the Greek language, but it would be so clunky to translate it, it would be hardly be readable for us. And what he's saying is, aren't those people terrible? Aren't those people awful? Those people are horrible. And you know, as the crowd hears this, do you know what the crowd's doing? They're like, they're amening. They're like, yeah, those people are terrible. I can't believe what they do. Have you heard what they're up to? The emphasis is on them. Can you believe those guys? And everything Paul talks about in that section, it's a very fascinating, difficult section, but everything he talks about are prevalent Roman cultural issues that the church audience would have largely been in agreement on. They could listen to that being read to them and they could say, amen. And if they're Minnesotans, they could maybe give a, a little mild nod. But they would agree with what Paul is saying. So he's got them all on board, but Paul's a genius and he's about to spring a trap on them. Romans chapter 1 verse 29, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness. Amen. Every kind of evil. That's right. Every kind of greed and depravity. Yes, preach it, brother. They are full of envy, murder, and strife, and deceit, and malice. Amen. And then there were some perceptive people in the audience, and they started to think, wait a second, I think I know where Paul's going, and this is not going to be good for any of us. And the next thing Paul writes, he says, they are gossips. And the audience is like, Ugh, uh, yeah, I guess that's actually not just the they. I, I sometimes gossip a little myself. Oof. Verse 30, they're slanderers, God-haters. Oh, yeah, 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 that's not us, that's them. They're insolent, they're arrogant, they're boastful. Yeah, all those awful, boastful people, they invent ways of doing evil. There aren't enough normal ways to do evil. They come up with new ways of doing evil. That's awful. They disobey their parents. And the teenagers in the audience would have been like, uh, uh, 
Do you see what Paul's about to do? He's got everybody on the same page, everybody amening, everybody in agreement about how awful those people are. And then he's about to spring the trap. And in chapter 2, verse 1, this is what he says, You, therefore, have no excuse. Do you notice how the pronouns have changed again? First, it's all I. I, Paul, I can't wait to see you. I can't wait to talk to you. I can't wait to impart some spiritual gift. Then it's all they, all those awful people, all those terrible people. And then he said, you have no excuse. And the audience is like, whoa, we were all on board, Paul. What are you talking about? Because the audience has just indicted themselves. They have just amened their way into conviction because Paul's about to say that the things you are so upset about that you see out there in the world, you are guilty of similar sins. You know this, right? I mean, those of you that don't buy into uh, the advertising, but did you know that often with thousands of products, the name brand product and the off-brand product are made in the same factory with the same ingredients by the same workers. They just put different stickers on them. Did you know that, right? Yeah. What Paul is saying is he's saying, you're really upset about the name brand sins, but you are guilty of the off-brand sins. And functionally speaking, they're the same thing. You're judging people, you're saying they, you're saying them, but you're also condemning yourself because you are guilty of different versions of the same sins. It's just got a different sticker on it. It's just got different packaging and different price points. And so what he's saying in this passage, he says, whatever sin you are bent out of shape about, you are guilty. Same sin, different branding. He goes on to say, it's so valuable. You who pass judgment on someone else. So have you ever done that? I can't believe they, I can't believe them. Can you believe those people? You who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself. And the audience is like, what, Paul, that's, hey, that's not fair. We were amening when you were talking about those people, but now you're talking about us. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Verse 2, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? And the audience is like, oh, great. We really walked into that one, didn't we? Man, Paul, you should have given us a little bit of a heads up. What he's saying is that you're not good because you can find someone bad to look down on. In the same way, you're not tall because you stand next to someone shorter than you. You're not smart because you can find someone who does worse on a test than you. You're not righteous because you can find someone less righteous than you. Righteousness is not found by your relative comparison to the people around you. Righteousness is achieved through faith. This is really important that we understand where we are before God before we start thinking, well, God must love me because I'm awesome. He doesn't love those people, but he loves me. And Paul's saying, no, 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 you are all messed up. You are all in the same boat. It's so tempting because judging people is so much easier than actually doing any self-improvement and achieve similar results. You know what I mean? Like, well, yeah, I could lose some weight, but not as much as that guy, you know? It's just easier. Paul's saying that's a dangerous, dead-end way of thinking. And here's why it's so dangerous. Because it's, it's essentially spiritual elitism, and I don't know that we think about that very often, but spiritual elitism leads to spiritual isolation because nobody's as good as you, and nobody can tell you what to do. And spiritual isolation will always 
always lead to spiritual death. You spiritually waste away. So what happens is people stop looking to be spiritually challenged and only look to be spiritually validated. Paul would describe that as having your ears tickled in other letters that he wrote. You stop seeking spiritual accountability and you only seek spiritual anonymity so that nobody really knows you, really knows what's going on in your heart, really knows what's going on in your life. Fewer, fewer amens in this part of the sermon. Interesting. But you can see why Paul's so direct, because he's trying to save them from spiritual destruction. You cannot access righteousness by, quote, unquote, having better sins than the other guy. That's a false hope. Righteousness is only accessed through faith. So Paul says, let's take out all the shortcuts. That's pretty genius. But that raises some questions because people are like, okay, Paul, if that's true, then what was the point of the whole Hebrew Bible? What was the point of the last 2,000 years of, of Hebrew law and ceremony and, and not eating pork and shrimp and going to the temple for sacrifice? What was the point of all that if none of us are any good? And that's what he gets into chap in chapter 3. He talks about Abraham in chapter 4. He talks about how Abraham was also made righteous through faith. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. But once Paul has kind of dispensed with that us-them nonsense that we buy into, then essentially the rest of the book is a new pronoun. The rest of the, the letter uses we pronouns. And it's really important because you'll see the word you every once in a while, but this is a word we don't have very clearly in English. It's actually, and I told you this about oof, 18 months ago, we talked about this a lot. The word you is second person plural. It's actually y'all. And so when he says you are guilty, he's saying y'all are guilty. He's not pointing to one person in the audience. He's saying you collectively because he's looking at them as a group. But it's so valuable for us to understand this. Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 11. I know we can't read this because it's too small on the screen, but the rest of the book is written like this. He writes, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord. And he's wanting us to understand that we're all in this together and how vital it is to weave back these separate pieces of church and to bring them back together into one group, one identity. This is huge. Uh, when our family lived in Taiwan, and this was true about 25 years ago, you couldn't go down to the corner pizza hut because there was no corner pizza hut. There wasn't pizza. So if you're thinking like, oh, what's an easy thing for dinner tonight? You, you couldn't do pizza. It may be different now, but at least at the time it was that way. And you would have to get on a train and go two hours to the capital city. And there was one pizza hut in the capital city in Taiwan. But the problem is, if you've ever been to any sort of fast food franchise place in America, if you go to Pizza Hut in Wichita, and then if you go to Pizza Hut in Houston and Pizza Hut in Newark, New Jersey, it's all the same, right? Basically all the same. You go to Pizza Hut in Taiwan, it is not the same. <laughs> it is very different. Everything was a little off. Uh, for example, standard toppings are not pepperoni, sausage, things like that. Uh, standard toppings are things like peas, and mayonnaise? I know. I may, yes, exactly. Like, oh, can I get a peas and mayonnaise? No. It's just, ugh. I know there's a big raging debate among uh, modern Western educated Americans about whether or not it's okay to put pineapple on pizza, but I think we can set that debate aside and we can all be on the same page and say it is not okay to put peas and mayonnaise on pizza. That is not okay. Yeah, there's some amens. <laughs> And dairy was hard to come by there, so the cheese was a little, it was cheese-like. It looked like cheese, had like more of a plastic-like consistency. 
Now, by, this, is, this is the thing. By my standards, it was off. By what I thought pizza should be, it was off. But who am I? Am I the final authority on pizza? Do I get to judge another country's pizza? Do I get to decide what constitutes pizza and what constitutes this abomination? It's not, it's not up to me. I, I'm not the arbiter of what makes pizza a pizza. In Rome... Jewish believers had traveled to Jerusalem and they had heard the gospel from the mouths of the apostles at the Passover and they took this truth back to Rome and they formed these little Jesus communities. And these Jesus communities had a very Hebrew flavor to them. When they sang songs, the likelihood is it was the Psalms from the Hebrew Bible. When they had fellowship meals, the likelihood it was kosher food. It was very Hebrew-flavored Jewish communities. In 49 AD, the emperor Claudius kicked all the Hebrew people out of Italy. He was suspicious of them. He didn't like them. Kicked them all out. And we read about that in Acts chapter 18. That's where Paul met Priscilla and Aquila. They had been kicked out. Uh, They were Jewish believers who had been kicked out of Italy. Uh, He left power or was deposed. And there was another emperor that came in. His name was Nero. He turns out to be a really bad guy. But at the beginning, he had some bright moments. He, his wife, had a real soft spot for Christians and Jewish people. And she begged him to let uh, the Jewish people back into Italy. And so it was about half a decade or so. And the Hebrew people ended up coming back to Italy. But when those Hebrew Jesus followers showed back at the Jesus communities that they had established, they had been gone for a while. And the Italian Jesus followers had taken over and things looked different, and maybe the kids' curriculum was different, and somebody had messed with the order of worship, and they weren't singing songs out of the Psalms anymore, and somebody had started bringing in non-kosher foods to the potluck meal, and there were some pork chops and shrimp that horrified the Jewish believers. Things had changed. The Jewish believers were like, listen, that's not pizza. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And we are the ones who define the way it's supposed to be. And I imagine, this is me speculating, but I imagine the Jewish believers were like, listen, we are the tried and true. We are the original. We are the OG. We know what God wants. We know what pleases God. You need to do things the way that makes us feel comfortable. And I wonder if the Italian Jesus followers were like, listen, you had your chance. You did what you did, and we've got this new and improved way of doing things. And there was animosity between the two groups. There was difficulty. There was conflict. Church was off. Church was different. We'll get into this more next week, but you cannot understand Romans if you don't understand that Paul was trying to knit back together these people from very different, distinct nationalities and ethnic groups. He was trying to bring them together. And Romans chapter 12 through chapter 16 will not make sense unless you understand what Paul is trying to accomplish. He's trying to strip away this you-do-it-my-way thinking and saying, let's think about we. Let's be we. Let's be together. Let me highlight just a few verses as we wrap up from the latter part of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 10, verse 12 says this, For there is no difference between the Jew and Gentile. And the audience, of course, was like, yes, there are. There are lots of differences. What are you talking about, Paul? And Paul's trying to say, no, 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 we need to strip that away. 
Romans chapter 12, verse 3, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Those people, they're awful. See, it's one thing if we're all in the room and we can say those people who are somewhere else. It's another thing if we're right in the room and we're looking across the room and we're saying those people, that's a problem. And Paul's trying to, to reconcile these two groups of people. Romans 14, 1, accept the one who is weak in the faith without quarreling over disputable matters. And of course, both sides says, well, they're the ones who are weak, not me. Romans 15, 14, I myself, I'm convinced, brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Because I imagine it was likely just the Hebrew followers of Jesus that were the ones teaching Bible class and preaching. And then all of a sudden, the Gentile followers of Jesus had to do it for a while. And the Hebrew followers of Jesus showed back up and said, you got to let me do it again because I'm right. And you're just some, you know, who knows what you know. You cannot sum up Romans in a sentence, but if you could... Church is life-giving when we pursue that we component of church. It's life-giving. It's life-giving. It doesn't matter. Listen, oh, this is so important. It doesn't matter how bad the song service is, how good it is. It doesn't matter how good, how bad the preaching is. It doesn't matter if the paint's peeling off the walls. None of that stuff matters. All that stuff is peripheral. One of the things that makes church good is that we worship God together, that we celebrate communion together, that we listen together, that we grow together. Church will be good if you are deeply pursuing we, and it will always be deadly, it will always fall apart if you're thinking me or them, us or them. It will always fall apart. You've seen it. Those of you that have been around long enough, you've seen it happen. Division isn't just ugly, it is deadly. It's deadly. And we have to be the catalyst for unity rather than any cause of division. That's what Romans is asking us to do, the catalyst for unity. 